Now, you can uh, keep a marker of some kind in your Bible in Genesis 22, because we'll be coming back to it just in a moment. But for our actual text, if you would go forward uh, towards the back of your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews and chapter 11. where the writer uh, comments on this passage that we have just read. And, of course, it is an inspired comment. It comes from the Holy Spirit. So it regulates how we should understand that incident that we just read. Hebrews 11, you'll find that on page 1382 in your church Bible, 1382. The chapter is full of references to men and women who did things by faith. In verse 17, there's a reference to Abraham and to the incident that we read. So let's read it carefully. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, that is Abraham, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. And he did so in verse 19, concluding, or he offered him up, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him, in a figurative or parabolic sense. So again, let's miss out some of these two verses. Let's just take up the beginning and the end. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Verse 19, he offered him up, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense or in a parable. So you can turn back to Genesis 22. Now, of course, this is a very uh, famous incident in the Bible. And I think right away that it's important to note that there are two ways in which we can see it. And I think it's best to keep these two ways distinct. The first way to see it is to see it as a severe test of Abraham's faith. And it undoubtedly is that, a severe test of Abraham's faith. The second way to see it is to see it as a vivid prophecy of the work of Christ to come, which would be nearly from Abraham's standpoint, 2,000 years in the future. In fact, not just a vivid prophecy, I think you could make a case for saying that it is the most vivid prophecy of Christ's death and resurrection in the Old Testament. You could at least make a case for that. So that's two ways of viewing the passage. First, a severe test of Abraham's faith, and second, a vivid prophecy of Christ's work. Sometimes when we try and weave these two things together, it becomes a little complicated and a little intricate and a bit packed. So let's just try and keep them apart. And this Lord's Day and next, we'll see it from both points of view. Uh, next week, God willing, we will think of it as a vivid prophecy of Christ's work. Christ is in Isaac. Christ is in the death, Christ is in the resurrection. But for now, with God's help, let's see it as a severe test of Abraham's faith. That's perhaps the way in which we're most used to thinking about it anyway. And clearly, it is a test. We're told that right at the beginning of the chapter, where we're told that after all these things, God tested Abraham. Now, when you come to the end of the narrative, 
It seems as though the test was for God's benefit. After all, in verse 12, where God puts a stop to the process, he says, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now there again, that's what's sometimes called an anthropomorphism. God speaking as man or God communicating something to us in a way that we can understand. Because we know that God knows anyway. God doesn't need to discover what's in the heart of Abraham. He doesn't need to find out whether Abraham is loyal or not, or to what extent he is loyal, God knows. But God communicates in that way just to assure Abraham of that. The test here isn't really for God's benefit. In fact, most tests are more for the student than for the examiner. I'm sure you know that anyway. The purpose of this test is really to show Abraham where he actually is in the life of faith. And not just to show him where he is, but to enable him to rise higher in the life of faith. When, we, when we're going through school, I suppose, it's difficult for us to see our own exams like that as an opportunity to see where we actually are and what we need to learn and how we are to develop. But that is really the purpose of the test. I think it's very important to remember that in the spiritual life. Uh, when tests come your way and they're very, very hard, as this one is very hard, uh, sometimes you're prone to resist it and you think perhaps it might be unfair to be tried in the way in which you're being tried. And I think it's very useful then to remember not only that God is benevolent and kind as a tester or an examiner, but the test is given to you in order to help you understand where you are and where you need to be and how to get from where you are to where you need to be. And you, you do discover that as a trial uh, works its way through your life. You learn things about yourself. Some of it you're not particularly pleased to learn, but you do learn by the grace of God. And the Lord shows you in the trial what it is you need to do and what it is you need to be in order to serve himself better. So that's really the purpose of this, this trial too. But in all fairness, I suppose you could argue the point that what's the point of that when Abraham is such an old man? He's lived his life, and he's run his course. And in that sense, I suppose it is really quite amazing that he receives such a, a terrible ordeal of a trial when he's so old. I mean, to put it into perspective, Abraham is approximately 115 years of age when this trial comes into his life. And you would expect, really, that his trials are over at that age. You would expect that his Christian warfare would be accomplished and that there wouldn't, wouldn't be anything of real significance to encounter later on, that he could take his ease in the Christian life. But it's not so. And as the Lord's people, we discover that in life, that our trials aren't over until a race is actually over and run. You're never too old to be tested as a Christian, never too experienced as a Christian to be tested. And right up to the end of your life, God is still interested in showing you to what you have attained and in expecting you to rise higher still. It may even be on your deathbed that God wants you to rise higher and through a trial on your deathbed to show faith that will enable yourself to grow and others to grow too. So don't be surprised if God tries you later on. In fact, I don't wish to make anyone over apprehensive, but you'll notice that this is his greatest trial and it occurs in his advanced age. So after these things, God tests Abraham. After tests and trials, God tests him again. 
and what a test it was. Now, I think we need to understand the real nature of the test and the particular difficulties that were involved in it. We need to get a full picture of that, a really comprehensive picture in order to understand exactly what's going on in the mind and spirit of Abraham. Now, let's look first at the real nature of the test. What exactly is it that God is calling Abraham to do? He's calling him to take his son, Isaac, who is at least 15 years of age here. Now, we're not really going to consider Isaac until next Lord's Day or Isaac's role in this until next Lord's Day. But it's useful to notice at this point that he is that age. He's at an age to run away or at an age to resist his father. Abraham leaves all that with God. God simply tells him to take his son, to go to an appointed place, to lay his son on an altar, to put him to death himself, and after doing that, to consume his body in fire as a burnt offering. Now, when that command first came to Abraham, Abraham has every reason to doubt whether it is God that is really commanding it. Any of us would. Now, in those days when Scripture was very short, uh, God would communicate either in dreams of the night or in visions of the day or sometimes even in a theophany where God would appear in the form of a man or in an angelic form. But when the message was this kind of message, it's not unreasonable to wonder if Abraham himself thought whether this was the prince of darkness masquerading as an angel of light. I mean, we considered that over the last couple of Sabbath days as we were looking at the temptation as it came to Eve. Paul told the Corinthians what the Lord's people have always known, but we need to be reminded of it, that the devil can appear as an angel of light. And his messengers can appear as messengers of light. And his words can appear as words of light. After all, he has done most of his damage through half-truths, not through lies. And he knows how to quote and to twist scripture for his own end. Abraham knows that the world was full of human offerings and human sacrifices. He had come from Ur of the Chaldees, an advanced city, the most advanced city in that day on the face of the earth, in all probability. And he's familiar with paganism, with offering human sacrifices. But he knows that that is no part of the religion that he now has. That's not part of the faith that he has in the God whom he doesn't just believe in, but the God whom he knows and the God he loves. That God does not simply not require a human sacrifice, but it is against his will. It's no part of Abraham's knowledge of God. But suddenly, this message comes to him, probably in the visions of the night, that he is to yield his son, Isaac, back to the God who gave him. God had miraculously given Isaac pretty much from the dead. Abraham's wife was barren at that point in time. But God miraculously revived Abraham's own body and revived Sarah's own body. And this child came, as it were, from the dead. Pretty much a picture, a messianic picture in itself. But if Isaac was God's to give, Isaac is also God's to take back. Life is absolutely in the hands of God. He can delegate the taking of it by capital punishment or something else. But it's his to give and his to take back. And if God commands it, so be it. And in whatever way he does it, God makes absolutely plain to Abraham that this is no devilish apparition. This isn't some kind of figment of his own imagination. It's not the workings of a delirious mind. It is God's requirement to take the son, the son of promise that was gifted in grace and to yield him back sacrificially 
to God. Full of things that Abraham initially doesn't understand. But Abraham believes that the requirement is real. You're never to think of this as being somehow theatrical, as though Abraham was testing God rather than God testing Abraham. You're not to think that at any point Abraham went out there thinking, oh, you know, he's going to stop the process. At some point before I get to Mount Moriah, or at some point before I actually put the knife into my son, God is going to arrest proceedings and he's going to stop it and say, look, I don't actually require it after all. That's to reduce the whole thing to a charade. It's to misunderstand what God is doing and it's to misunderstand Abraham's response. Abraham really believed that he had to give his son back to God by means of an actual burnt offering and whatever else we understand in our minds before we go any further, let's understand that. This is all very, very real for Abraham. However much he doesn't understand. But I want to consider not just the actual nature of what was asked for, but the particular difficulties that were involved in it. This is a sacrifice, but it's a great sacrifice. As we'll see next Lord's Day, it's a sacrifice that reminds us of the one who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. For Abraham, earthly speaking, or speaking in an earthly manner, nothing could be harder to conceive of than this. First of all, it is his son that he's to give. It's no stranger. It's his own flesh and blood. However difficult it would be to conceive of ourselves doing this to anybody, it's pretty much impossible to conceive of us doing it to our own son. But second, the scripture emphasizes that it is your only son. You'll notice how particular God is in that. How particular God is. Take your son, he says, your only son, Isaac. At one level, that's quite a strange statement because some of you will know that Isaac, strictly speaking, was not Abraham's only son. Isaac has an older brother or an older half-brother, Ishmael. Ishmael was born to the slave girl who was in Abraham and Sarah's household. Of course, he was born because of a lapse on her part and a lapse on his part. They both became conscious of their declining bodies, and their inability to have children. And Sarah first reasoned, perhaps she was first in that condition, and she probably reasoned, well, it can't be through me. And she suggested to her husband that perhaps it was through a practice that they were familiar with, because in her of the Chaldees, this kind of practice was always done. If a wife was barren, that a slave woman would be used to, to bring up a child who would receive the inheritance and so on. So it was a practice they were very, very familiar with. That's a reminder to us, by the way, that it doesn't matter who familiar you are with a practice, how prevalent it is in a culture. If it's against the word of God, it's against the word of God. And of course, uh, they sowed the wind doing that, and they reaped the whirlwind for many, many years through Hagar and Ishmael in the household. But that, in some ways, for now, is beside the point, except to notice that when Ishmael reached a certain age, he began to persecute his younger brother. And uh, that persecution is referred to in the New Testament, and the word used is persecution, mocking. Perhaps we don't get an idea of the severity of it in the Old Testament. It was at Isaac's circumcision. Ishmael was mocking him. When he was weaned, he was mocking him. The New Testament tells us that was persecution. I mean, the fact of the matter is that Hagar... Uh, had hopes for Ishmael, and she was manipulating the whole household in order to put Sarah to the side and for herself to assume the place as, as the mother of the household. That, that was her intention. And, uh, of course, Sarah was trying to take matters to a head, and she was telling Abraham that he needed to deal with the problem in the house. Abraham would not, until God came to him one night and told him to Listen 
to the voice of Sarah, your wife. Listen to the voice of Sarah, your wife, and cast out that woman and her son. For the uh, bondwoman and her son would not become heirs of the things of God. They were not fit. They were far, far from it. They may have been in the household of a man of God, but they did not share the faith of the man of God. And so Abraham had to do the difficult task just 10 years before this, when he was not much over 100, he had, he had the, the difficult task of evicting his own son from the house. Now, many of us would find that a very difficult task to perform. But that depends on what your son would be like. You say, well, I, I can never see myself doing that. Oh, but have you seen what your son could possibly do? We've been spared from it, maybe. Be thankful that you've been spared from it. But what you had here was a couple of plotters who would never cease until they had subverted the whole household. Abraham found that hard. He had already lost his first son. And here he's to lose his second. This is his only son by promise. This is the only son left in the household. This is the son of himself and Sarah. Not only is it his son, his only son, but God particularizes a little further. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. I suppose it would be different if they were estranged, if there was a coolness of some kind, if there was a, a coldness. I'm not saying that would make it easy. I'm just saying it would make it less hard. But it's not like that. This is a son for whom he and his wife had waited for so many years. He was 100 when he was born, 100 years old when he was born. It's a son of his old age. And it's easy to imagine that Abraham and Isaac were inseparable from childhood, especially when you have a child like this who is of such a meek and a quiet spirit. And even at 15 years of age here, Isaac is demonstrating that he has the mind of Christ. There's no doubt about that. There is no way a boy could be, a young man could be as receptive to what his father was doing at this point and yielding to it unless he himself was a child of God from a young age. And having been a child of God, it's easy to imagine just how close Abraham and Isaac would actually be. Daily his delight. Daily his delight. A child of meek and quiet spirit. I mean, Jacob was like that, was he not with Joseph? I mean, Jacob was absolutely distraught at the state of his own household. He had sons aplenty. But each one seemed to outdo the other in terms of ignorance and wickedness and rebelliousness until the birth of Joseph. Joseph. And Joseph consoled Jacob and brought light and warmth into the home. And of course, it was through the sufferings of Joseph that the rest of his brothers came to the knowledge of God. I mean, there's so much in that too, is there not? There's so much of the New Testament in that, is there not? There's so much of Christ in there. Through Joseph and his sufferings, his brethren came to know the Lord. But how much Jacob loved Joseph. How much Jacob loved the fellowship of Joseph. How much Abraham loved Isaac. And how much Abraham loved the fellowship of Isaac. He's to take his son, his only son, and the son whom he loves, and he has to offer him. Offer him. Take him and offer him. Of course, that means that in this activity, Abraham isn't passive, he's active. In other words, he doesn't lose his son here, he has to give his son. He has to offer his son. Now, usually when we lose, even when we lose family, it's because God takes them, not because we give them. If you think, for example, of Job, who in one fell swoop, in one day lost 
seven sons, and three daughters. You know what lay behind that, but to lose your whole family and a family of that size in one day and in one catastrophic event, it's just so shocking and so difficult. But Job didn't give that family. God took that family. And that's very different. There's no, there's no doubt that we're still in some sense required to give there because our duty even in that situation is to, well, what? It's to be reconciled with it. It's to accept it. It's to say what Job said when he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Maybe some of you have had that experience. Having to give back to God, perhaps a son or a daughter, and it's been bitter and painful and difficult. But at the end of the day, you didn't give, really. God took. You had to be reconciled to that taking, yes. And inasmuch as you had to be reconciled, there's a sense in which you give. Because you simply say, yes, Lord, you took. You have a right to take, and therefore I yield and I give. You took and you took away. But ten of a family. Ten of a family. But for Abraham, it's so much more. He's got to be the active agent. He must give his son. He must put his son to death. And after putting his son to death, he's got to commit that lifeless body to the flames and to watch it burn. So he has to actively offer his son, his only son, whom he loves. You'll notice, too, that he has to do it in a distant land. We'll see next Lord's Day that there's a wonder involved in this land. It has to be Moriah, where Jerusalem is situated. We'll come to that, as I said, next time. But it's a 40-mile journey for him. And it's a 40-mile journey that he has to spend in the company of his own son, whom he loves. And does that not add to the difficulty of it? For three long days, he has to carry this thought in his own head, and he has to carry this sacrifice in his own head, and he's not able to speak about it to anyone except God himself, when he can't even understand what God is asking him to do. It's said in the letter to the Hebrews concerning the patriarchs that when they were making their journey through the promised land, that if they wanted at any point to go back, they had plenty of opportunity to return. But they didn't return because they had forgotten the human city of Ur and they had their eyes set on the city of which God is the maker and the builder. They were looking to the future and they were not looking to the past, but they could have returned at any given point. Abraham could do the same. Three days a long time to have this in your head. Three days a long time. It allows you to rethink and to reassess. But he didn't do that. He had an opportunity to go back, but he just pressed forward. But it makes it mighty hard. You'll notice, too, that he doesn't just do it in a distant land, but he's got to do it all on his own. At least that's what we infer from the narrative. And that's what Abraham appears to understand. I know at the beginning that he takes two servants with him. That's simply to carry the wood. To carry the implements of fire. They only go so so far on the third day. How significant the third day is too. The third day reminds us of Jonah and the whale. It reminds us of Christ in the tomb between his death and resurrection. But on the third day, he lifts up his eyes and he sees the place. At that point, he leaves the servants behind. They, they won't know. They won't understand. What would they do but intervene? If they were going to see Isaac bound and Abraham take a knife, they would stop the proceedings. But the proceedings are not to be stopped. Abraham knows that what God has asked him to do, he's got to do it on the soul. It can only be done 
on his own. No one to witness it, no one to discourage him, neither is there anyone to comfort him. No one to give him consolation. He must face it on his own. There are some things in life that you need to face on your own, and I think your greatest trials are actually faced on your own. Sometimes it wouldn't even help to involve anybody else. You know, you, you may discover sometimes in the, in the Christian life that it's always helpful to consult people. Uh, but sometimes you just can't, and God ordains in such a way that you can't. When, when Elijah had to go into the wilderness himself, when he was deeply perplexed by what God was doing in the land or, or what God was not doing in the land, you remember he, he expected a reformation to begin, but the reformation did not begin. And it's hard to imagine just how crushing a thing that is. It, it's, it's bad enough not to see a reformation that you are hoping for, but to see a reformation that was actually on the brink of happening, it's very difficult to be reconciled to it. And he went away and he took his servant so far and he left the servant in Beersheba and he went himself to be alone with God because he had a controversy with God. Well, God had a controversy with him too, but he had a controversy with God. And sometimes you have to be on your own with God. That's where God does his deepest work in your soul where nobody else is around, or even if people are around, nobody's available to help. Nobody can really understand, and nobody can really enter into it. It is you and God. That's how it must be resolved. That's how it is with Abraham. He's got to do this deed on his own. And as if all that isn't hard enough, it simply gets harder in the way. As they're traveling on the journey, they have the implements of the fire and they have the knife. And Isaac suddenly turns and says, my father. Isn't it interesting that the scripture records that? It doesn't record another word between the two of them. Not a word. For myself, I suspect that little was said anyway. I suspect that little was said but it does record that Isaac says, my father. Abraham says, here I am. Isaac simply says, the fire and the wood, but no lamb. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? But for now, it's the expression, my father. Need he have said that, but he said it. And as someone once remarked, it was sharper than the knife that he was carrying when it went through his heart. That's the bond between them, a father and a son, and he's got to offer the son for a burnt offering. How difficult a thing it was to do. So how does Abraham respond to it? Well, at one level, the answer to that is very simple. He responds to it as we would expect him to respond to it. As the friend of God, and the father of the faithful, he responds with strong faith and with obedience. You can't separate the two anyway, can you? Where you find faith, you find obedience. Where you find obedience, you find faith. Can't separate them. But let's begin with the obedience. I want you to notice right away that it's loyal obedience. Abraham has one master. One master. And he's got no divided loyalty. When that master speaks, that master must be obeyed. When Paul was called to the ministry, he tells us, or he tells the Galatians, and through them he tells us, that he didn't consult with flesh and blood. He didn't ask anybody's advice. He didn't ask anybody's opinion. Why? Because he had been called directly by Christ to the ministry. Simple as that. The Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he called him into the ministry. So he doesn't go and see the rest of the apostles. He doesn't ask Peter what he thinks about it. He doesn't go down to Jerusalem and ask James and John what they thought about it. He says, I was immediately 
obedient to that heavenly vision. Now, there are times in life when God's will for you is not plain. At such times, by all means, consult. Ask advice. Ask advice of old, wise Christians, preferably. Remembering that not every old Christian is wise. And remembering, too, that not every wise Christian is old. But ask counsel of Christians who are wise and who are themselves godly and who themselves have a history of putting God first before man. Don't ask those who will discourage you from doing the will of God. For Abraham here, the risk of consulting anybody is way too high. Who's going to tell him that this is a good thing to do? Suppose he was to go into Sarah and say to Sarah, do you know what God has told me? What do you think Sarah would say? I don't think God has told you that at all. I think that's your imagination. Or worse still, it's the devil. No. Neither does he tell the servants what he's going to do. Doesn't consult anybody. If God speaks, do it. If it's God's will, do it. Don't speak to anybody about it. He is absolutely loyal. You cannot serve two masters. Make up your mind who your masters are. Are you here to please the church? Are you here to please other Christians? Are you here to please the world? Are you here to please denominations? Are you here to please congregations? Or are you here to please God? What are you on earth for? Who is your master? I've sometimes come across, and this is really quite difficult to see, I've come across ministers who do something that they know isn't right because they think it's what the people expect of them, and they call it self-denial. It needs to be called something else. They will say, we are servants of the church. The answer is, you are not servants of the church. You are servants of Christ to the church. Always remember the difference between these two things. You are a servant of Christ to the church. If you were a servant of the church, the church would be your master. So the church says, jump, you jump. No. A servant to the church, a servant of Jesus. So if Jesus says, you say this to the church, you say, okay, because you are my master. That's ministers. Same is true of you. Your master is not your husband or your wife, your children or your family or your boss at work or anybody else. Jesus may call you to serve them, but he is your master. He is your master. One master. You cannot serve two. You cannot serve two. And Abraham is absolutely loyal. And to consult is fatal. So watch your consultations. I I said that last week, I think, or the week before. Watch who you consult, especially when you know in your heart already what God really wants. You'll notice, too, how prompt his obedience is. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. Is that not the best way? Is that not the best way? Especially when the thing that God asks us is difficult. Is it not best to do it right away? I mentioned to you already how Abraham had to put a son out of his house. One of the most difficult things anybody could do. But I want you to notice that he did that early in the morning too. In fact, it's on your page actually. I didn't realize when I was speaking earlier, it's the previous chapter. I thought it was a couple of chapters earlier. But in chapter 21 here, Um, verse 9, when Isaac is being weaned, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who's around 13, 14 at this point, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. So he's mocking Isaac, persecuting Isaac. Therefore, she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was, now notice this, here's the difficulty, you see, even with his first son. And the matter was very displeasing 
in Abraham's sight because of his son. In other words, he loved Ishmael too. But God said to Abraham, don't let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. In other words, you've got to assess this situation spiritually. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning. Notice the same thing. Isn't it interesting? The two most difficult tasks he had to perform, he gets up early in the morning to perform them. Uh, like I said a minute ago, if God wants a thing done, do it quickly. To delay is fatal. You know yourself very often that, that to delay is just to invite trouble and disaster. It's not just consulting others. That's the problem. It's just delaying in the thing, rethinking and reconsidering. He who hesitates is lost. The same is true when it comes to being a Christian. I mean, the most pressing, the most pressing issue for some of you in here today, it's not something that God's requiring a few steps along the Christian life. It's right at the beginning of the Christian life. He's calling upon you to yield yourself to God. N never mind what else he may ask, but to yield yourself. He's calling on you to become a Christian, to forget your father's house and your kindred, and to take a step out in faith, and you're so full of worry, and you're so full of fear, what if this, and what if that, what will my father's house say, or what will other people say? And the psalm says, I did not stay, nor linger long, as, as those that slothful are, but hastily thy laws to keep myself, I did prepare hastily, get on with it, get on with it. You know already yourself that to delay is fatal, don't you? Because you were thinking about this a long time ago. Years ago, you were thinking about taking this step, and you've delayed, and you've lingered. And to linger is to be lost. You're courting again with being lost. You're again on the precipice of a lost eternity. But you have another opportunity because the Lord is saying to you to yield yourself today. Give your life today as a burnt offering to the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. Offer yourself. Well, don't delay, but hastily yield yourself to God. So he's not just loyal in his obedience. He is prompt in his obedience. I want you to notice, too, that he is thorough and particular in his obedience. Every step of this obedience is itemized. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood and he laid it on Isaac. He took the fire in his hand. He took a knife. Verse 9, they came to the place. Abraham built an altar. Abraham placed the wood in order. Abraham bound Isaac, his son. Abraham laid him on the altar. Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand. Abraham took the knife to slay his son. Why is it all itemized? You could argue it's for dramatic effect. Well, if it's for dramatic effect, it certainly achieves that. But is that the only purpose, really? I don't think so at all. I think the purpose of itemizing it's just to tell us that at every point he has to will to do it. At every point it's difficult to do it, but at every point he does it. Even as our Lord Jesus himself, as we'll see next week, was obedient every step of the way. And each step was a difficult step to take. And can we not say actually in connection with our Lord's sufferings and our Lord's obedience that, that it got harder as it went on? became harder to obey. So it is with Abraham. It's, it's conveying a picture of a man who has to fight, to fight, to be obedient at every single turn, but he's thorough, binds his son, and he offers his son. He offers his son. That's the most 
that he could give. God sometimes will ask us, ask of us things that perhaps we never expected and we have to be willing to acquiesce. In the psalm that we sang there, you must forget your father's sows. It can sometimes be difficult for people to forget their father's sows. I remember years ago reading of the conversion of a young boy from another faith. And uh, he knew it would be difficult, but he, he just didn't anticipate the depth of the reaction and the extent of the rejection that he got when he became a Christian. His father actually showed him to the door and told him that as far as they were concerned, he was now dead and he slammed the door with his son on the outside. That was it. That's what it cost for him. And I talk about my costs. Maybe you talk about yours. And sometimes we come across a cost that makes us feel that we've never done anything at all for the Lord. What's the secret of this kind of obedience? Faith. Faith. And that's what's being tried here all the time. As Hebrews actually tells us, Abraham took Isaac, of whom it was said that in Isaac your seed shall be called and offer him up. But here's the difficulty. Or here's one of the difficulties as far as faith is concerned. It's not just the sheer difficulty of the thing itself, but the spiritual um, enigma. You gave me this son to be a means of life for the world. That, that, that's what you said about this child. That through this child, not only would the Messiah be born, but all the families of the earth would be regathered together to you as their great God. So, sorry. So why, why are you requiring me to put him to death? Let me answer that question as best as I can. The issue here that confronts Abraham is God's faithfulness to his own word and Abraham's faith in God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to his own word and Abraham's faith in that faithfulness. After all, what's really at issue is the resurrection of the dead. That's really what's at issue. Is Isaac going to stay dead? If I slay him, if I yield him as a burnt offering, can God raise him and will God raise him? You know, these things are things we believe, but sometimes you're tested as to whether you really believe them or not. Do you really believe in the last day? Do you really believe that the elements of this earth will melt with a fervent heat? Do you believe that the cosmos will be destroyed by the hand of God who made it? Do you believe that God will raise from the dead the bodies of all who lie in death? These bodies that are decayed, disintegrated, and scattered to the four winds, many of them. Do you believe that the God who took this world into being by the word of his power, by the same word of his power, will reconstitute the whole of the human race and present them before the judgment seat to be divided as the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left? Oh, yes, you believe it. Do you believe it? Will you give your life for these truths? Are these things as real to you as the building in which we sit or stand? Are they as real to you as the book in front of you or the person sitting beside you? Sometimes these things can just be a philosophy. A philosophy that you believe, just like someone else believes his philosophy. Or is it all true? And now and again we're tested on the matter. And this is a test for Abraham. You left out of the Chaldees a long time ago. You left everything you had there, the prestige and the position. And you've been sojourning in this barren land, really, for years and years and years. And after all these years and all these trials, do you still believe in the resurrection? Do you still believe in the Messiah to come? Well, let me test it, Abraham. I don't want you just to give me your son, but I want you to burn him. I want you to burn his body. And I want you to let the fire do its work to reduce your son to ashes 
and to tell me afterwards that you still believe in the resurrection of the dead. Do you believe that God will raise your son up? Well, yes, Abraham did. And how do we know that? Because the letter to the Hebrews tells us. It tells us that he offered up his son considering that he was able to raise him from the dead. Notice how the two things go together. He offered him up considering. That was his motivation. That, that's what's regulating his conduct, the fact that he believed that God would raise him. When did he expect that to happen? Well, I think there's two possibilities. One is a future day. He will leave once the body is burned. He'll take the ashes and he'll bury them. And he could believe that one day after he's left this world, God will raise up his son again. Why? Because God said that that's the son that would bless the world. So if God said so, then God will do it. Maybe after he himself is dead and gone. See, many of God's promises are fulfilled um, after we've left this world ourselves. Um, We'd like to see everything fulfilled while we're here, but that's not very often the way it works. So maybe Abraham was saying, well, I I thought I would see it, but I'm not going to see it after all. A future day. Or maybe Abraham was expecting a resurrection that day itself. After all, you have these mysterious words where he says to his servants in verse 5, you stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go over there and worship and we will come back to you. We We. It's possible to argue that Abraham is simply just saying this without giving it too much thought. On the other hand, it seems far more honoring somehow to think of him as giving it thought. I will slay him and I will consume him, but before the days through, God must raise him because God said he would. So whether it was that day or in the future, he believes his son will die, but that he will not be given over to death. And so with a trembling hand, he lifts the knife and prepares to offer his son. And let me just close with this. Although God stops him, Famously, God stops him. You all know that. Just at the very high point where the knife is about to be plunged into the sun, God stops him. Although God stops him, God considers the deed done. You have not withheld your son. The letter to the Hebrews says that he offered up Isaac. He offered him. And you say, but but he didn't. Oh, but he did. Why? Because God says so. God considered the fact that he was willing to do it as the deed done. Just as Eve fell when she resolved in her heart to eat the fruit, even before she touched it. It's useful on the other side, too. There are people today who are not in church because they don't want to be in church. There are other people today who are not in church who would love to be in church. They're they're listening online and worshiping online, and they would love to be here. And because they do, God considers them here. Considers them here. Because they will to be here. And they desire to be here. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That when you resolve something in your heart, God considers it done. It's a wonderful thing. Abraham, I know that you gave me your son, and that's enough. Don't touch him. Don't put the knife into him, because I know that you have given me your son. For three days, you have willed this in your heart, and you have sacrificed him to me. The old man passes his trial. And he receives his son from the dead in a parable. Parable? Well, yes, it's a strange parable, this. It's all a picture, a picture that God wants to give him. Because the strange thing is, you see, 
as you've no doubt experienced already in your Christian life, your greatest trials are associated with your greatest blessings. They all come together. And God didn't put Abraham through all this for some kind of fun. How could he? There's a purpose. And the purpose is that God wanted to show Abraham something he had never really showed him to this extent before. He wanted him to come to a, a knowledge and an understanding and a, a depth of spiritual experience that he had never had before. And by the time the whole event is over, by the time the ram is caught in the thickets, by the time the ram is slain on the altar, everything's changed for Abraham and indeed for Isaac too, because they see the day of Christ and are glad. Let us pray. Lord, our God, enable us to enter into these things as we are enabled by you to see a greater sacrifice than this, but also enable us on the human level to give what you require us to give and not to be holding back, even as Abraham did not hold back his only son. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen. Let's close by singing in Psalm 73. And at verse 23, page 316, we sing to the tune, Whether be. Nevertheless, continually, O Lord, I am with thee. Verse 24, thou with thy counsel while I live wilt me conduct and guide. And to thy glory afterward receive me to abide. Whom have I in the heavens high but thee, O Lord, alone? And in the earth whom I desire besides thee there is none. Now can we honestly say that? No one comparable comparable with God in heaven, no one comparable with God on the earth. My flesh and heart faints and fails, but God to fail me never. 23 to 26, we stand to sing.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.